0: Hello, my name is Nick Augustine. I'm a strategy consultant and publicist, and I love my job, creating and promoting focused image of my client's success. My nationwide professional clients are busy practicing law and finance, and I represent them with my proprietary list of contacts, products, and activities I use to generate awareness. One of those is this show, Law Talk Radio, and I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Uh, this show is produced by ProServe Public Relations. Again, we're a business development PR firm, bringing you new and pragmatic content on Tuesdays with Law Talk Radio and on Thursdays, the Money Talk Radio shows. Uh, today is a special edition of Law Talk Radio uh, appearing on Tuesday here. We're continuing our series with Donna Adler. Um, this title of this show is Civil Liberties Examined Post 9-11 with Donna Adler, Part 5. Chicago Civil Rights Attorney Donna Adler walks us through the statute the status of civil liberties in the U.S. following the September 11th attacks. This, again, is the fifth show in our 10-part series examining the 9-11 Commission report, among uh, many other things. Having practiced law for 25 years, over 25 years in the Chicago area, attorney Donna Adler has built her career incorporating education and service to local, professional, and business communities. Donna Adler's outreach includes advising on legal issues in several practice areas, including, without limitation, General civil general and civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense and administrative law. At Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County in Oakbrook, Terrace, and her website with more information is Donna M Adler Law LLC Again, Donna M Adler Law LLC we do want to welcome callers this morning. If you would like to offer your comments or ask a question, you may call into our show by dialing 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number again is 917-889-9732. By way of general disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute professional advice. Communication with attorneys and finance professionals on our show does not give rise to client relationships. ProServe PR does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers are confidential. All rights to this broadcast are reserved. Again, if you have an upcoming event you want to promote on our show, please let us know. Again, ProServe Public Relations is a full-service PR agency focused on law and financial industries. We serve our clients with content development, event management, and media relations. Give me a call at 312-505-2604 to talk about how I can help you. Again, 312-505-2604. Subject matter of today's show, Civil Liberties Examined Post 9-11 with Donna Adler, Part 5. Many attorneys... Uh, nope. Hold on. Wrong spot. Sometimes we oops. I want to read you the right subject matter description.
1: I can do that, Nick.
0: All right, take it, Donna.
1: Oh, all right. Uh, first of all, the the website is HTTP. You know, the double slash stuff. www.DonnaMAdler, dot donna m adler adler dot com. Uh, we've been doing this series on 9-11, um, the first item on the agenda being to go carefully through the 9-11 Commission report and present um, some of the findings by the 9-11 Commission and then uh, to look at the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission uh, in detail with that material in context. Thereafter, uh, the agenda is to take a look at legislation. We are in the middle, um, after having last time Talked about how Al Qaeda rose to prominence, examining what our government knew about it and also uh, how our government was operating at the time so that we can understand more clearly why um, 9 11 happened, you know, where certain things missed. Our program today is focused on this what we knew about Al Qaeda's rising to prominence and somewhat on um, what kind of intergovernmental cooperation. There was, and how some agencies were structured, either to um, respond efficiently or not. This may take us two shows, may take us only one. So either next time or the time after that, we'll get to the 9/11 recommendations, and then we'll start looking at some of the legislations. That's where we are today. I want to preface my remarks um, on this radio program by saying that as I was studying in preparation for um, this radio show this morning, there were a couple of things that hit me um concerning the material we're covering. This is a conclusion I've drawn. Um so I'm going to just offer this for for what it's worth. I'm there are probably all kinds of problems with this set of suggestions, but I think that one of the um overriding problems was that the the um terrorist threat was not sufficiently defined in the early years following the um following the meltdown of the Soviet Union. In nineteen ninety one the um Soviet Union collapsed. I remember very vividly watching all the footage of the Berlin Wall coming down and I remember thinking as I watched um the wall coming down that um this was a joyous time for the um certainly for the German people and for many others um that, that communism had um collapsed and In the Soviet Union, or at least it looked that that's the way it would be. Uh, But there was a concern that I remember very markedly focusing on in in my own mind, and that was, my God, for years um, the Soviet Union has been stockpiling nuclear weapons, and there's been this arms race. What's going to happen uh, to all those arms? Can we now expect there to be a black market in nuclear arms? What kind of problems? What kinds of problems will this development give rise to on on a defense, front. and I remember very markedly thinking about that. I think that there are probably people in the government who um, had that same thought. I would be astounded if there weren't. But it seemed to take a very long time to shift during the decade of the '90s from a mentality that was Cold War focused in a number of our government agencies: the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, um, the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, to a mentality that really appreciated that the world was going to be a different place, and there was this problem with, um, there was this problem with that stockpile of nuclear arms that radical groups might want to take into of now thank god we haven 't had anything like a, a nuclear holocaust, but that was just part of the problem with definition I think um, the second kind of problem with de- definition we were already seeing when um, president bush second president bush was explaining to the American people that there was this group called al-Qaeda. The American public just weren't on um, top of the terrorist threat by that time, and it seems astounding to me, given what our government knew about it, that um, we would not have been more aware of it as, as, as a public. And the other thing that surprises me in retrospect was that during those days that President Bush was uh, explaining what his strategy was going to be, um, it's, there, there was such a dust, disjunct between what he was saying and the public understanding. Um, all the all the rhetoric about um, how we were going to fight a war that it was of indefinite duration. These things don't fall well um, on the ears of a free people, as they think. Well, I'm not sure we have the resources to wage a war of indefinite duration. But I think that if there had been some effort uh, publicly to try to define the threat, um, one way to have done it by then that might have been realistic in hindsight, and I'm not saying that it was realistic, but I'm thinking it might have been realistic, there may be problems with this kind of definition. But I think a beginning of discussion for um, defining this kind of threat might have been to say, um, we're going to start recognizing these groups as non-state actors, okay, which they were, and that was, that was known. But we're going to say the non-state actor comprising an organization, a network, an association with military capability that is training others to commit violent terrorist acts or is committing terrorist acts on its own should be regarded as a rogue sovereign, Upon which war can legitimately be declared under circumstances justifying war on any other sovereign state. Second part of that that I, 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 I might have um, hashed out was the countries hosting such non state actors are the allies, and aiders, and abettors in league with the agendas of those groups if the government sanctioned the presence of such groups, and that presence is not against the governmental will. We know in many cases that the presence of non-state actors is against the governmental will, and in that kind of case you would not want to label a country that way. And you might then say that war is justified against them just as it is justified against the rogue sovereign if they are in league knowingly. Then I would address uh, the third prong and say NGOs, because Nash, uh, uh, these um, non government organizations were uh, vehicles through which bin Laden's network funneled money, that NGOs knowingly laundering money for non state actors of the type described should be dissolved and the principals prosecuted criminally and, where appropriate, tried for treason. Um, and that the war would be over. Because I think that that seriously needed definition in in those in those Bush years, the war would be over when the problematic enemy was destroyed and dismantled. Okay, so that's more focused. It's focusing on a particular organization or group, and it defines objectives much more clearly, I think, for the public. And those objectives were not clearly defined when um, when we went into to Iraq. The connection between Iraq and possible terrorism certainly wasn't clear, and. Um, there was a great deal of, of of tumult i think because there wasn't clear a definition that might have been avoided and on the political front um, would have been would have been easier so those are just my my um my offerings after having prepared for um after having done my preparation for today i would like to start with just a few brief remarks on the way the government was organized to deal um to deal with the Cold War as it was transitioning to the 1990s, how are things set up. And then I hope to come back to that um, in greater detail toward the end of the show. But I do want to sort of run the gamut of what we knew when um, before that. The, The FBI here on the home front was organized into regional offices, and the focus was for the field offices to take charge. So, it was there was of course a central head of the FBI but the operations were decentralized so that each office was um was was almost like its own um regional center okay and those regional centers set the agenda for their regions uh, terrorist activities were focused on, um, and the the office that had the expertise in this was the was the office in 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 New York State near the Southern District of New York. They developed quite an expertise in terrorist activities, but um, terrorist activities and detecting them was not on the agenda of the FBI compared to things such as um, drugs and and, and drug related crimes. Um, there were other things on the FBI, and terrorism had um, had low precedence in um, in that agenda. So folks worried about um, worried about a terrorist threat in the United States had an uphill battle to try to get priorities situated there. Um, the CIA, on the more international front, also had um, decentralized operations of that kind. Okay, for um, for the greatest part the Department of State was still geared toward thinking of terrorists as either agents of states or as criminals. So um, as our government became aware of what al-Qaeda was over the 1990s, they became um, um, cognizant that somehow um, bin Laden and his group were different from that, and it took a long time to wake up to exactly uh, exactly how they were different. The Federal Aviation Administration, again, um, I'll come back I come back against with um with some vitriol because uh, in my preparation for today as i was as i was um as I was reading that the the f a a had apprehended um only twelve terrorists th- through of uh, some kind of, of period of time in the nineteen nineties that at the same time try to locate the year as we we go on with the show, but um at the same time the department of state had prepared a terrorist watch list okay that was that was quite extensive and the faa was not making um was not making use of that so i began to wonder why how could there be such a gap in uh, in knowledge, when the d o s terrorist watch list um should have been within easy access to a member of the f a a simply by um making a few phone calls or, or, or knowing um who to contact to get that information you know if if you don't know exactly who to contact for it and now I think that uh, much of that watch watch list is um i don't know whether that watch list is on the web, but I know that um state sponsors of terrorism have been um you can access that kind of information. Uh, for EOS, but it, it should have been not problematic for the Federal Aviation Administration to communicate with the uh, Department of State about a terrorist watch list and put um, the individuals on that list, um, um, develop some kind of network to um Create a guard against individuals individuals on on that list. So those are just prefatory remarks, and we'll come back to more more um, concerning how the government was organized um, later. But um, there may have been a little bit of false optimism too as the 1990s stood out uh, with our ability effectively to address terrorist issues, and that was precisely because the Southern District of New York. Um, U.S. Attorney's office and the FBI office there were so on top of the problem. When the World Trade Center bombing occurred in February of 1993, uh, the FBI was pretty efficient at tracking down the the people who were involved, and those folks were those folks were prosecuted. And the uh, the FBI uh, New York Field Office swung into action. Uh, They cooperated with the Southern District of New York. Uh, People were prosecuted and. And jails, so that was a resounding success. Um, law enforcement mechanisms alone, though, were not going to be um, sufficient to root out uh, the possibility of terrorist activity um, here at home. When law enforcement swings into action, it, ha- it happens um, after the event. It's not it's not preemptive in its orientation. So that is only one prong of um, of what needs to be concentrated on. All right, now I'd like to move on to um, to the chronology from, say, 1995 to 2001, and we'll try to um, get through as much of that as possible. We have sort of two shows devoted to these matters, so if we don't get quite to 2001, we can finish that up next time and then do the examination of the 9-11 um, Commission recommendations in the, in the show following. Well, by 1995, the National Intelligence Estimate was, um, was warning about a, a new style of terrorism. Um, Although a lot of people continue to think, and and the government continue to think of terrorists as agents of state acting, you know, like the Hezbollah acting for Iran in the Car Towers incident, or as domestic criminals. Um, 9-11 Commission um, reports that the elimination, um, a targeted elimination of al-Qaeda was not a clear strategic objective before 9-11. Okay, that is, that's astounding. But I think it's it's true. As you as you read their findings, the period of the 90s was a period of time in which um, people were waking up to what Al Qaeda was. It took just took too long until 1996. Um, hardly anybody in the government understood that um, that Al Qaeda was this this network, almost like its own uh, almost like its own uh, own government. In 1992, the, the Department of State detected uh, bin Laden's money in aid to Yemeni terrorists who set a bomb to kill U.S. troops in Aden in 1992. In 1993, the CIA noted that bin Laden had paid for training of Egyptian terrorists in the Sudan. And if you'll recall our show last time, I think I had mentioned three countries that were uh, really problematic in this whole scenario as um State sponsors of terrorism, although the government would define that term differently than 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 I would. I think that Iran definitely was um, has has hosted terrorists for a long time. That um, that um, Saudi Arabia is problematic in its um, sponsorship of fundamentalist groups that produce these people. Pakistan is certainly problematic. Um, the Sudan is another um, problematic um, area of the world. It was uh, at that time. In 1992 or 1993, the Department of State saw suspicious links between bin Laden and Omar Abdel Rahman, who was the blind sheik in New York who had something to do with that World trade center bombing. And he commented that bin Laden seemed, um, the the Department of State officials commented that bin Laden seemed committed to financing jihads against anti islamic regimes worldwide. After Sudan was designated as a state sponsor of terrorism in 1993, Bin Laden was put on the tip-off watch list of the State Department, and that move might have prevented his getting a visa had he tried to enter the U.S. So that was a good thing that he was put on that tip-off list at that point in 1993. In 1997, though, the CIA Counterterrorism Center, a group that had specially formed it, was the Bin Laden units in the CIA, was still calling him an extremist financier. So they didn't really have, even the CIA, a... um, a real appreciation of of um of what he was and how he was he was organized, and just a side note about the CIA uh, the CIA was very active in trying to uh, launch um launch action agendas against bin Laden all throughout the nineties but I think that the CIA was somewhat crippled both in its its confidence it was careful I have to say that, and i can 't argue with the judgment calls made. Um, in the 1990s, about putting together plans and then um, setting them aside, um, because people were afraid they were not going to work, and the CIA was in, you know, in dialogue with with the White House and with the FBI and with other intelligence agencies in, in connection with uh, some of the action plans. But I think that so I can't argue with the judgment calls, and, and subject to my saying that, I would say I think that um, perhaps. Um, although I can't argue with the judgment calls, some of those judgment calls might have been different if people had had more confidence in um, the CIA, which was hard to have. Okay, given track record of the CIA in um, certain other instances of botched operations, and the memory of those things um, was was um, was very clear and vivid. I think during this period, both for the CIA and for other agencies uh, dealing with the CIA. But in 1996, the CIA set up a special unit, and they haven't, by the way, um, done much to they they haven't, by the way, I done much to inspire confidence with some of the things we saw go on in the war in Iraq. Um, but the CIA set up a special unit of a dozen officers to analyze intelligence and plan operations against Bin Laden in 1996. So that was a good span of time before 2001. They set up a virtual station and um they wanted to set up a virtual station and they were going to concentrate that virtual station on on terrorist financial links the officer that was running the islamic extremist extremist branch of the counterterrorism center um was very knowledgeable about afghanistan and he had noted a stream of reports about bin laden and al qaeda and he had um suggested that uh, he had suggested that Cohen, who was the head of the uh, Cohen, the head of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, focus on Bin Laden. So out of that suggestion um, came this focus. But the uh, virtual unit did not get off the ground right away. Now, in May of 1996, you'll recall Bin Laden left the Sudan for Afghanistan. In uh, 1996, there was an intelligence breakthrough uh, about bin Laden. Jamal Ahmed al-Fadl walked into the U.S. Embassy in Africa, and he um, established um, to their satisfaction that he'd been a senior employee of uh, bin Laden. Um, he provided a lot of information about um, bin Laden and al-Qaeda and the creation of that network, its character, its intentions, and the direction it was intending to go in. There was a corroborating incident that came from um, another walk-in source at a different U.S. embassy. Then in 1996, as that year went on, um, intelligence from other sources, um, including information that was being gathered by the FBI and Kenya police um, from al-Qaeda in Nairobi, were confirming um, the information, other information that had been gathered during that period about the nature of the network. In nineteen ninety seven the CIA's Bin Laden unit um learned that Bin Laden was more than a financier. Okay, that it learned that it had a military committee planning attacks against US interests worldwide. Why that it was actively trying to obtain nuclear materials. By that time, um analysts that were assigned to the Bin Laden unit had found links Between Bin Laden's um, activities and living arrangements, and um, they had evidence. They had evidence between his location and his money, and um, they had links to the Taliban at that point. And the CIA's um, people on the ground, um, the sources they were using, were near to providing real-time information about him in um, 1997. At that time, so to um, clarify, the government was getting. Um, information about his contacts, and they were giving, uh, being given intelligence about his real movements, his business activities, his security and living arrangements, and um, assets on the ground were helping to provide evidence that he was spending large amounts of money helping the Taliban. In the fall of 1997, the bin Laden unit roughed out a plan for um, Afghan tribals to capture bin Laden and to hand him over for trial. Now, I think that there was um, always sort of a dispute about the reliability of these um, Afghan tribals in terms of capture. But cabinet level, um, in early 1998, a cabinet level um, principles committee um, gave this concept of the capture of bin Laden by Afghan tribals its its blessing. In June of 1998, so that was a bit later, a grand jury in the Southern District of New York issued an indictment against bin Laden for conspiring to attack U.S. defense installations and the um counter terrorist center at the the bin Laden unit at the at the CIA knew that this that this was happening, that this indictment was going down. Um upon the move to Afghanistan in May of nineteen ninety six, bin Laden became subject um he became the subject of the inter- of interest to in the Departments of State South Africa Bureau. In um nineteen ninety seven, uh, Madeleine Albright was the Secretary of State and a policy review indicated that the US needed to pay more attention to Pakistan and Afghanistan. The Department of State worried was worried about the arms race, okay, also worried about a possible war. This was its focus, a possible war between Pakistan and India um, relating to um, this um, arms race and the nuclear testing, uh, pos- possible nuclear between them Um, after may of 1998 when both countries uh, surprised the u.s. by testing nuclear weapons those dangers became a daily and first order concern in the department so this came as a real surprise in may of 1998 that um, india and pakistan both had nuclear weapons how that um, could be a surprise to our intelligence community is another story Um, very interesting that that no one picked up on this but the Department of State was then trying to formulate its Afghanistan um, policy um, in, in that area, so it was worried about Pakistan and India. That was the first priority. Also, though, trying to formulate an Afghanistan policy, the Department of State in Afghanistan was concentrating on ending the civil war uh, that had continued there since the Soviet Union withdrew. And they had a proposal on the on the plate uh, on the plate for Union Oil Company of California to build a pipeline um, across um, Afghanistan. It was sort of a carrot that they were, they were trying to hold out to both sides in order to induce cooperation and end the civil war. In April of 1998, um, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, um, Bill Richardson, led a delegation to South Asia, including um, to Afghanistan in in that month and year. No U.S. official of of such rank had been to um, Kabul for a long time. And he went to uh, promote negotiations that would end the civil war in um, view of the Muslims, of, of bin Laden's recent public call at that point, remember he had been in February of 1998, for Muslims to kill Americans everywhere, Richardson asked um, the Taliban to expel bin Laden. So after that, FATWA came down in February of 1998. There were active efforts to get Afghanistan and the Taliban to expel bin Laden. They answered that they did not know his whereabouts and that he was not a threat to the U.S. Now, whether they knew his whereabouts, who knows Um, at that point, whether it was true that they didn't know his exact whereabouts. If you'll remember from last time's time's show, it took um, a little while for bin Laden to... um, warm-up to the Taliban and for uh, there to be some cooperation between them, but he had focused on them as a group to help him. Um, well, not that far after he arrived in if, in Afghanistan in 1996, so probably by April of 1998 the Taliban would have known uh, where he was. The um, plan in 1997 to capture bin Laden, that plan about the tribals of the bin Laden unit, what, what was going on with that? Well, initially... The tribals were supposed to ambush, ambush bin Laden in his travel between Kandabar, the Taliban capital, and Tarnak Farms, which was where he lived. And the Tarnak Farms was this complex of about 80 mud-brick buildings um, surrounded by a 10-foot wall. The CIA officers mapped, um, mapping the site... Um, had cut off the houses that would belong to bin Laden's wives and um made a decision between that and the house in which he was the house he was most likely to sleep in. Um, Nick, are we getting ready for a break?
0: Yeah, we could take a break now. You is it a good time oh. to take a break?
1: No, I was just I was just unsure. Um sometimes in this um in this um hefty weather. I no I'm not ready for break. I can go on. If you're ready for break we can do it. I just wasn't sure. Yeah, and let's pause. Sometimes, sometimes I lose it. my internet phone connection in um in weather where the wind's blowing hard. So I thought to myself, have I lost Nick? No.
0: <laughs> no, 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 I'm still here. I um we have uh, one fewer message today, but I do have an event to tell people about. Um, This is a really uh, good event, and I'll give you the background. Uh, This is a CLE I'm going to tell you about um, called Exploring the Issues in Substance Abuse, Confirming Use, Treating Use, and Prevention of Further Use in this upcoming seminar by Nancy Minard in uh, Let It Limited presents this. Uh, Some of the news in the background. In the last two weeks, the headlines about substance abuse have been alarming. Heroin use is on the rise drug deaths outnumber auto fatalities, drinking, and the cost of productivity in the workplace uh, are, again, outnumbered by drug de- by drug use recently. Uh, all these topics have a bearing on the cases that are brought to the bench. And you need to be current in your knowledge if you're an attorney practicing in any area that um, may be impacted by this. When your client alleges the other party is abusing drugs or alcohol, do you know how important it is to both parties to find out the facts? and protect the clients, children, and others. Well, this series uh, is a CLE, and it's called, again, New Threats and Concerns in Drug Use, Abuse, and Addiction in the 21st Century. Four hours of professional responsibility credit. Uh, Who should attend? Judges, family law, criminal law attorneys, and law students as well. takes place on November 18, 2011 from 1230 to 5 p.m., uh, so it's a half-day event. It's at the East Bank Club at 500 North Kingsbury. Free parking is included with tuition. Presenters at this event are, number one, the Honorable Helene Berger, who's a circuit court of Cook County Justice and moderator, uh, Dr. Bruce Jeffries of the National Screening Centers. He's coming all the way from Houston, Texas, um, and also an expert witness in over... A thousand cases. Ed Noakes uh, from the Illinois area is a treatment provider. Uh, again, this is produced by leaded Limited. You can contact Nancy Minerd uh, for more information and to register, and her email is Nancy N A N C Y L E D D E D at gmail.com. So nancyledded at gmail.com. Again, N-A-N-C-Y-L-E-D-D-E-D at gmail.com. Special rates do apply for students and governmental agencies and groups for this event. Again, a very good CLE. Four credits of professional responsibility. Um, Real industry experts here who are attacking and addressing uh, some of the issues in drug use. I know that uh, October was... Uh, Drug Prevention Month in October 29th, this last Saturday, there was a prescription med turn-in program uh, being being offered by several local municipalities because it is a problem when our children are abusing prescription medications. Uh, So many of us think about illegal narcotics as being the main problem, but prescription medications are very scary uh, as well. So just wanted to let you know about that. Now back to our show with Donna Adler. Again, we're today talking about, uh, this is show five in our series on 9-11 Commission Report and the events post-9-11, and today we're focusing on some intergovernmental issues. Uh, Donna, very interesting how the bin Laden seems to have, Flown under the radar, the thought that he was just an extreme finance an extremist financier. Um yeah, you know, what we know now, what we knew then. Uh I appreciate your time in this series, I really do.
1: Oh, no, you're you're welcome. Um for that, Nick. I think that I wouldn't so much say that um that bin Laden was under the radar screen. I think he was under the radar screen, but what was under the radar screen for a long time was the exact nature of the of the right. organization he headed. And it was difficult to... Um, Track down as objectives. So a lot about that organization remained under the radar screen for a long time, and it, it took a long time to sort of bubble up to the consciousness of, at, at the requisite level of of um, people in key you know agencies of our government. But back to that um, plan that the CIA had um, that the CIA had offered uh, for the capture of Bin Laden um, by the Afghan um, tribals. By fall of 1997, they ran two complete rehearsals of the plan, so they had they, they, they were getting ready to go on it. In, um, in early 1998, they were then ready to go to the White House for formal approval of that plan. Um, the plan was that upon capture, bin Laden was to be arraigned. There was some um, dispute about how long he was going to be held by tribals, a little bit of discomfort about the security of that kind of, of, of holding, and... Um, exactly what he was going to be uh, exactly what he was going to be arraigned for now remember it's later in 1998 that um the um southern district of new york um issues issues the indictment against him but um they did indicate that there were risks at that time that people might be killed um and that Bin Laden supporters might retaliate against them against the U.S. by taking citizens in Kandahar hostage, but the uh, but there was a risk also in not acting, and that was that Bin Laden was a ticking time bomb that he would attack U.S. interests possibly with uh, a weapon of mass destruction. Um, and I have to say, you know, with, with all the rhetoric that went on about weapons of mass discussion, dis- destruction uh, later on, much later on in Iraq when um, it was pretty apparent that there wasn't one there, the general concern about um, the possible use of a me- weapon of mass destruction by a terrorist group is 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 um, not something to be dismissed precisely because I think the dismantling of the, um, the collapsed Soviet Union did, um, did bring that whole specter of horrors um very realistically um uh, to play. So I don't think that that concern was um was a straw man by any by any means. But Bin Laden and um Bin Laden they knew okay by that time had been responsible for um, the attacks on U.S. troops in Aden and Somalia in 1992 and 1993, and they knew about the participation of um, some of his people in the Manila Air Plot in the Philippines in 1994 and 1995. So they were on to him. Um, by 1997, the bin Laden station um, had been, as I said, was working on plans for offensive operations, and um, and in 1998 they were ready to uh, go for approval of this in approval of this in the white house let me back up just a minute to um um to to um to just uh, point out a couple things that had happened prior to um the cia's going to the White House for approval of this plan, uh, back up from 1998. Um, in 1995, because I don't want to detract from the efforts that the government was making um, even before then, bin Laden was still in the Sudan in late 1995, and the State Department and the CIA learned um, that Sudanese officials at that time were discussing with the Saudi government the possibility of spelling bin Laden. Um, at that point, um, the U.S. ambassador, um, Tom Carney, was encouraging that, that expulsion. The Saudis didn't want him, though, um, now Fatwa Irwa, who is the Sudan's Minister of Defence, has claimed that the Sudan offered at that time to hand Bin Laden over to the US, but the nine eleven three report found no credible evidence that um that, that was the, that that was the case. And there was no indictment then outstanding against Bin Laden. So I think that um I don't I don't believe, okay, after reading the the Commission's um summary that it's true that Sudan offered a hand bin Laden over to the U.S. I'm just sort of going, going, um, backing up from 1998 so that we can see that uh, there were people in government onto him somewhat and knew he was a bad guy and wanted, um, wanted him apprehended in some way. In May of 1996, when um, bin Laden moved to Afghanistan, the bin Laden unit within the CIA uh, saw that as a stroke of luck. They had basically abandoned their... Um, Operations in Afghanistan after the Soviet Union had withdrawn from it, but they reestablished contacts while they were tracking down um, Miramal Khansi, who had been a pa- Pakistani gunman who had murdered two CIA employees in January of 1993 in the United States. So the, the way they were able to hatch this plot um, and have some realistic expectation of success was that they had resurrected that network, and it was important just to uh, just to cover that. In March of 1998. The CIA did a third rehearsal of um of the plan. They um they briefed um they briefed um they briefed Clark, the, and his counter uh, terrorism security group, Richard Clark, um, who had the ear of Berger in the White House, Sandy Berger in the White House, and um they estimated at that time, um two months later in May of nineteen ninety eight that the chance of capturing Bin Laden um by means of that plan was about forty percent. Military officers um, by May of 1998 were reviewing the capture plan. Um, some were uncomfortable with it, but didn't advise the White House not to proceed. Proceed. They did think the operation was too complicated for the CIA. Some um, had suggested that the CIA was um, out of out of out of its league, and they did worry about the dependability of the pri- uh, of the tribals. Um, he also wanted to know what actual Sandy Berger wanted to know at that time. What actual hard evidence? Um, at this point, there was against Bin Laden for the purposes of um, bringing him back to the United States, arraigning him, and and trying him. Um, in May of 1998, um, CIA managers reviewed okay their memo about the plan, and they drafted a memo of notification, which was a legal document authorizing the, the capture. There was discussion about this document that was um, a document prerequisite to, preliminary to, and um, necessary to go forward with the operation but it uh, it sparked another round of discussions um, and that that round of discussions brought out unease among senior CIA managers even about the paramil- about paramilitary covert action
0: um, and that had
1: been become ingrained this um, reservation about paramilitary covert actions because the CIA had had some incidents. In which the um, paramilitary action had not um, turned out as they expected, and so they were much more cautious about approving plans going forward. So, its senior management in May of 1998 was beginning to get cold feet. Um, cold feet about the plan. Um, the counterterrorist center officers at the CIA, thats the Bin Laden unit—told um, the attorney general, told Attorney General Janet Reno at that point, and FBI Director Louis Feach that the operation had about a 30 percent chance of success. Um, John O'Neill, who was the head of the FBI's New York field office, um, briefed the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and her staff about the plan. Um, Her memory of uh, that time, with the chance of catching bin Laden alive, what she remembers of that um, briefing, were um, were almost nil. In May of 1998, um, the CIA ran a final graded rehearsal of the operation, and that was spread over three time zones. Um, they brought in persons from the region. The FBI, FBI participated in that rehearsal. The rehearsal went well. The Counterterrorism Center planned to um, to um, go to cabinet-level principals and um, their deputies the following week. January, uh, rather June 23, 1998, was uh, their proposed date of raid on the on Tarnak Farms. Um, by July 23, 1998, they um, had proposed to bring Bin Laden out of Afghanistan. But on May 29, 1998, um, the plan came to a halt. George Tenet, who was the head of the CIA, um, James Pavitt, who was the CIA senior manager and um, chief of the director of Central Intelligence in the Near East, decided not to go forward. Richard Clark, who um, had been a White House staffer and had his own, um, had, had assembled his own interagency group to um, deal with the bin Laden threat, also thought the plan was flawed. So, from more than one source, people were having reservations about that plan. Um, the CIA's um, senior management did not think the plan would work. Um, nonetheless, a Clark's group in the White House continued to track bin Laden, as did, as did the CIA. But the plan was, the plan was abandoned. In the spring of 1998, the CIA learned that the Saudi government, um, maybe this is part of what went into the decision not to go forward with uh, the plan, some of these other developments. In the spring of 1998, just about the time, okay, when um, the CIA and the folks in the White House decided to uh, abandon the CIA suggested plan, the CIA was learning that the Saudi government had disrupted bin Laden's cells in its country, and um, those cells had been planning to attack U.S. forces with... Um, shoulder-fired missiles. Uh, Tennant asked them, okay, to help against bin Laden. Clinton made uh, George Tenet of the CIA his informal um, representative to work with Saudis on terrorism, and Tenet visited Riyadh in May and June of 1998. So maybe um, those visits were, um, were producing a hope that um, there would be a less Risky means of dealing with Bin Laden at that at that point, which makes perfect sense for them to to put that plan on hold if they if they saw a chance of um, a less drastic, um, po- a less drastic avenue of addressing the issue effectively. In May and early June of 1998, um, Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah, who had taken um, charge from King Fahd, promised George Tenet that he would make a secret effort to persuade the Taliban to expel Bin Laden so that he could be sent uh, to the United States or another country for trial. Um, and Tennant was, uh, reported at that time that it was imperative to get um, an indictment against him. And, and it's that at that time also that the New York grand jury um, issued an indictment in, in June of 1998. Um, in the summer of 1998, um, Prince Turkey um, of Saudi Arabia met with Mullah Omar and other Taliban leaders to get a commitment to expel bin Laden. And Mullah Omar did commit um, under incentives and threats, but he didn't come through. Uh, then in August of August of 1998, on August 7th, um, Sandy Berger woke Clinton up at 5:30 um, a.m. in the morning to tell him that two U.S. embassies in Africa, one in Nairobi, Kenya, and one in Dar es Salaam, in Tanzania, had been um, had been bombed. Immediately, there was a suspicion that Bin Laden was behind that. The Pentagon offered a plan um, to the White House at that point to respond with Tomahawk cruise missiles against eight terrorist camps in Afghanistan, including bin Laden's compound at Tarnak Farm. Clinton gave, um, as part of the response to the embassy bombings, President Clinton gave the CIA authorization to try to capture bin Laden again. Um, An executive order froze um, financial Holdings that could be linked to bin Laden. Okay, so they had authority to freeze assets um, if they could link them to him, and they had the authority again to go on an awe capture plan of of bin Laden. um, George Tennant went to a principal's meeting um, with intelligence that um, terrorist leaders were uh, going to gather at Nost, Afghanistan um, to plan future attacks several hundred terrorist leaders were expected to attend that gathering um, that they had found out about. It was, um, no staff Afghan, Afghanistan was located away from civilian population centers, and it was overwhelming, overwhelmingly populated by jihadists. Um, the gathering there at the white house, um, the, the principals meeting—I shouldn't say the gathering there at the White House. I don't know exactly where they met, but um, it was it was the principals meeting. Gathered everybody together who was working um, on this issue and who had um, decision-making authority with respect to what to do. They reached a consensus to attack on um, that jihadist convention. On August 11th, General Zinni received orders to prepare detailed plans for a strike against um, against the Afghanistan sites that had been selected. The, Pen- the Pentagon briefed President Clinton on August 12th and 14th. There was debate about whether um, two facilities in Sudan should also be included in the attack, One was a tannery believed to belong to bin Laden and was believed to provide a great deal of his financing or to be useful to him in that way. The other was al-Shifa, which was a um, cartoon pharmaceutical plant that was manufacturing an ingredient for nerve gas. There had been soil centers um, indicating that nerve gas was um, that the a precursor chemical for, for nerve gas that could be used only for that purpose um, was being made there. And the, the lone use of nerve gas is, is mass killing. People were worried about what had happened in the Jap- in a Japanese subway with nerve gas um, not too not too long before, and um, didn't want um, and it had connections to Bin Laden. and They didn't want him to be able to launch some kind of surprise attack somewhere in some U.S. City. and um, they eventually decided not to attack the tannery they did go after the after the pharmaceutical plant on august 20th 1998 um, this meeting was um this meeting was um going on in in afghanistan naval vessels in the arabian sea fired their cruise missiles they hit most of their attended intended targets um they killed 20 to 30 people in that um gathering of jihadists but not bin laden the missiles had to cross pakistan and this is this is one other other um problem that um may not be in the consciousness of most um, people considering why didn't we get him earlier there was another problem with fi- filing, you know cruise missiles into afghanistan and that was that they had to go over pakistan and um there was the danger of a mistake uh, of, of a mistake being made by Pakistan that the missiles were coming from India. And given what the relations were between those two countries at that time, um, it was a vital concern that Pakistan not believed that uh, those missiles had come from, had come from India. So uh, we had to let Pakistan know ahead of time uh, what we were going to do so they wouldn't make that mistake. And it's possible that someone within the Pakistani government tipped uh, um, bin Laden in this group so that um, bin Laden was not uh, caught in that, in that missile strike. But they did, in fact, um, take it. Advantage of um, that clear opportunity to try to eliminate Bin Laden as a threat in um, in August of 1998, after the um, after the attacks at the U.S. embassies. Uh, Public attention in August of 1998 and most of 1999 was being deflected, okay, from some of these serious issues that the public really should have been able to focus on, because um, at that time at the White House. President Clinton was in the midst of the Lewinsky scandal. The 9-11 Commission Report seems to think that a, a movie that came out in 1997 did not help the public consciousness. Um, that movie, Wag the Dog, um, I, I, I saw that movie, but it it featured a president who faked a war, to to distract public attention from a domestic scandal. Okay, and and this was exactly what was going on with Clinton, this domestic scandal with Lewinsky. So the movie did not help as far as um, inspiring confidence in in President Clinton. Um, Certainly what he was doing at the time (laughs) inspired no confidence whatsoever in him. And the public's attention was completely um, bound up with this. So the public was not focusing on... The need to pay attention to what was going on with um with terrorist groups, so what was the response at this particular time of the public to the um, attempt by um the principal's committee and the uh, major agencies in our government to actually effectively deal with bin Laden with these bomb strikes. Public um, commentary was was just scalding, okay, to the effect that the action was too aggressive. Um, the Sudanese, in the meantime, were denying that al-Shifa, that al-Shifa plant produced nerve gas. Um, Clinton, Gore, Berger, Tennant, and Clark were pointing to soil sample evidence, but, of course, no one was hearing them because the only thing people were hearing at that time was... Um, uh, Monica Lewinsky and President Clinton—absolutely uh, ridiculous. I remember how disgusted, how disgusted I was um, as that all that hit the news in 1998. Policymakers still knew little about Al Qaeda. Now that's that's amazing. Policymakers still knew little about Al Qaeda although they had information available that it was a global network. In other words, they they didn't know. uh, They knew bin Laden was a bad guy and he was financing a lot of terrorist activity. They didn't know a lot about the nature of al-Qaeda, although information was available that it was a global network. um, The means of information that the... CIA's Bin Laden group had been developing since 1996 um, was was there, and it pointed uh, to this um, to this fact that Bin Laden's network was a global network, but this information had not yet been pulled together and synthesized for the rest of the government. Um, that's amazing. That's one of those instances, one of those cases where you say. Why not, okay? Why hadn't it been pulled together and synthesized for the rest of the government? Um, why wasn't information packaged in a way that uh, would communicate as clearly as it did to the CIA what the nature and extent of this network was and what's inten- what its intentions and goals were? So there's, there's a question I have in my mind about why uh, that information had not been pulled together yet and why it wasn't disseminated to the rest of the government. Certainly the CIA was in in conversation um with with um other intelligence agency heads at those principal meeting principals meetings and um they were planning these um these these um capture scenarios so there were others who were aware that there was a serious threat from bin Laden and al qaeda but um somehow they weren't uh, aware of the depth of the the depth of the threat um in the meantime let's let's back up a little bit since 1995 or 1996 the us had committed um other things going on that distracted attention from uh, the terrorist threat because because of 911 we we focus on that and say well where were their heads you know why didn't they see this why didn't they see this coming There were other things going on um, since 1995 or 96 the us had committed um serious uh, military resources to the balkans um they were maintaining a nato led um force there and um, they were beginning to consider um, combat operations against Serbia to uh, to protect Muslims there from ethnic cleansing. In October of 1998, there were airstrikes in Serbia, and also there was a possibility of uh, major operations against Iraq because of um, Saddam Hussein's obstruction of the U.N. inspection regime there. So after the response to the embassy bombings and the, um, you know, hall cruise missiles going into Afghanistan, there were other things on the plate of of, of um, our governmental leaders militarily that um, would have helped to put um, bin Laden and his network sort of on a back, they were never on a back burn. I think that's inaccurate, but to the priorities were such that those other things were being addressed um, uh, addressed first. In December of 1998, uh, there were the Operation Desert Fox airstrikes against Iraq because Saddam Hussein wasn't cooperating with the uh, um, with the inspection regime, and all of these other commitments militated against taking on operations um, on another front. This time, this um, new terrorist threat based in Afghanistan. Uh, Richard Clark, though, who was um, he was not in the CIA; he had he had his career as a staffer, okay, in um, sort of the White House realm. He had had direct access to the era of Sandy Berger, um, and he was deeply concerned about about bin Laden. So between him and the CIA bin Laden unit, there were avenues of communicating the seriousness of the threat. He developed something he called the political military plan, Delenda Delenda referring to um, the destruction of a threat, and it was a quite significant paper. It proposed that there be diplomacy, Um, as as a plan to deal with bin laden to deny bin laden sanctuary so the u.s. would work with other countries um, to have them deny bin laden's sanctuary it included covert action to disrupt terrorist activities it contemplated the capture of bin laden and um Bringing him, Bin Laden, and his deputies, and to bring them here to the U.S. for trial, um, he contemplated drying up the money supply, so getting a, a better handle on where the money was was coming from, and to prepare for um, to prepare for military action. Um, this was never formally adopted. This plan it was never formally adopted by um, by the principal's committee. It contemplated some rolling attacks. Sandy Berger um, and the Defense Secretary Cohen and Clinton were unconvinced about those those rolling attacks. Um, they were worried about uh, a point that came out in the Economist magazine that attacks that missed Bin Laden would only enhance his status and bring him more recruits. Um, U.S. civilians. Um, it, 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 U.S. citizens were uh, the U.S. had been criticized. U.S. citizens and others were criticizing the U.S. for the 1998 um, Iraqi airstrikes at this point, and also the 1999 Serbia airstrikes. So, uh, the U.S. at this time did not want to seem did not want to seem bomb happy. Uh, so, there was a lot going on in this period of time that uh, would have conditioned the um, immediate would have conditioned immediate plans to go into Afghanistan to take bin Laden. You really can't argue when you see everything in context. You can't argue with the judgment calls. They were judgment calls. Um, Who is to say that they were wrong judgment calls at the time? They were concerned about about what was actually going to be effective. In the last week of August of 1998, um, the uh, Principals Committee considered further strikes. Okay, but... They weren't confident that they could articulate. A, a, they, they could create a clearly articulated rationale to justify further strikes. There was um, consideration that the Department of the Defense take the lead in championing, championing a national effort to change the national strategy uh, regarding these terrorist groups, just to completely develop a new a national strategy to deal with terrorism, to put it on the on, on the front burner. But that didn't. Um, that did, That did not happen after that time. After the August strikes, as I've mentioned before, diplomacy seemed better than military options um, because of developments happening in Saudi Arabia. The U.S. did issue a formal warning to the Taliban and Sudan that they would be held responsible for the attacks on Americans that occurred um, that were caused by the bin Laden network. In August of 1998, um, the U.S., Mullah Omar told the U.S. that um, strikes were counterproductive. But after those Tomahawk strikes, he um, indicated that he would be open to um, dialoguing about bin Laden's presence in Afghanistan. In September of 1998, though, when the Saudi, um, when the Saudi emissary asked whether Mullah Omar um, would keep his promise to expel bin Laden, um, Mullah, Mullah Omar said that he, w- he would not honor it, and then Riyadh suspended diplomatic relations with the Taliban at that point. And um, Crown Prince Abdullah told President Clinton about um, those developments. Um, now, what was going on with um with with our relationship with the Saudis in um nineteen ninety seven and, and I do really think we need to um reexamine our relationship with the saudis uh while they are a friendly presence for us to some extent in the in the mid east they they have not been called on the carpet i think sufficiently for um being a venue that um actively supports a form of Islam that is fundamentalist, okay the the Wahhabist um, the Wahhabist version of um, of Islam, and um, that is the um, cultural um, the cultural pot from which these people are being produced, okay. So I think that um, we need to address that with um, need to address that with the Saudis, or should have addressed it with the Saudis um, at hey, that time. <clears throat> Donna, yes,
0: we're almost out of time for this hour, so it looks like. Talking about the Saudis maybe are our beginning uh, Where we begin so like, next time. Where we yeah. begin next time. So lead us through. So next time, as we continue with the Saudis, what will we also talk about next time?
1: Well, we'll finish, as I said. Um, we'll finish the, the chronology up to 2001 with respect to what our government was trying to do about bin Laden and um, the, um, the the network that he founded. Um as I mentioned, then we would, would take on some of these questions of um, governmental organization and the way things the, – the slow shift from being organized to deal with Cold War-like problems to a new kind of threat after um, the Soviet Union collapsed. I had indicated at the top of the hour that I, that I thought that uh, that shift took place um, over far too long a period of time, that – it should have been an immediate focus of, of our government that now that the Soviet government had collapsed, there was going to be this problem with um, perhaps a black market in nuclear arms and uh, bad actors um, that were non-state actors trying to get hold of those. And that seemed to be not the focus, okay, or not a very clear priority for a very long time. For me, it would have been, um, as I said, that was the first thought I had. One of the first thoughts right. I had as I watched the the wall come down, and I'm amazed. Okay, that um, it took so long to make that a top priority for um, for our national defense. So we're going to go into into some of those issues of how our government was organized um, toward the toward the Cold War and um, how it wasn't organized to deal with the, the terrorist threat. To see um, how that fed into um, the occurrence of 9/11. I would also recommend before we break break up that um, Ali Tufan, um who worked for the FBI, has written uh, a book that recently came out called The Black Banners. It's the inside story of 9-11 and the war against al-Qaeda. He was definitely someone who was very much involved in in tracking bin Laden and his network. I am reading that book right now. It it, it promises to be a fascinating read, and I would recommend that to um, other people trying to um, educate themselves about what's going on.
0: Well, thank you so much, Donna, for your time, and thank you to all of our listeners out there. This is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and we'll see you for Part 6. Thanks again, everyone.
1: Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office.